Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 4 of A New Voice of Freedom, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is taken from a series of books written under the banner In Defense of Christianity. Podcast 186, Argument for the Existence of God, Episode 17, is entitled The Language of Law, Part 2. The principle of causality is the key to deterministic law. The cause brings about the effect. The effect represents the consequences. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the cause is that which gives rise to any action, phenomenon, or condition. Cause and effect are correlative terms. According to Rodell's Word Finder, the effect is defined as that which is produced by some agency, product of some efficient cause, result, resultant consequence, etc. The Oxford English Dictionary defines effect as something accomplished, caused, or produced. Science is devoted to discovering conditions of certain events in nature called the laws of nature. As a working definition, let's define conditions as the cause necessary and sufficient to bring about the effect. The effect is the consequence that occurs when conditions are necessary and sufficient. For example, the National Superior Storms Laboratory presents the following as the cause of lightning. Lightning is a giant spark of electricity in the atmosphere between clouds, the air, or the ground. In the early stages of development, air acts as an insulator between the positive and negative charges in the cloud and between the cloud and the ground. When the opposite charges build up enough, this insulating capacity of the air breaks down and there is a rapid discharge of electricity that we know as lightning. The flash of lightning temporarily equalizes the charged regions in the atmosphere until the opposite charges build up again. Notice that the conditions must be both necessary and sufficient. Also, according to NSSL, thunder results because Lightning causes thunder. Energy from a lightning channel heats the air briefly to around 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit, much hotter than the surface of the sun. This causes the air to explode outward. The huge pressure in the initial outward shock wave decreases rapidly with increasing distance and within 10 yards or so has become small enough to be perceived as the sound we call thunder. Laws have two parts, cause and effect. The cause, also called conditions, always precedes the effect. We say that law is deterministic, meaning it will occur whether we like it or not. The effect will occur any time the conditions are necessary and sufficient to bring about the effect. In nature, multitudinous effects occur over which we have no control. In other words, the conditions occur naturally. For example, we have no control over thunder and lightning, just as we have no control over gravity and other laws of nature. 
For that reason, scientists claim that we live in a deterministic world. That is why they compare man to animals, man to machines, and man to robots. Some scientists conclude that as a result of natural law, we have no free will. For example, as Mr. Stephen Hawking observed in The Grand Design, It is hard to imagine how free will can operate if our behavior is determined by physical law. So it seems that we are no more than biological machines, and that free will is just an illusion. Reality doesn't support Mr. Hawkins' opinion. Otherwise, why is man so ingenious at inventions? It is for the simple reason that science understands the conditions of laws, and man uses those conditions to put a man on the moon, to build computers, to fly jets, to drive cars, and so on. Control over conditions gives us free will. Jesus said it this way, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus is speaking of perfect knowledge of both temporal law and spiritual law, both of which are governed by cause and effect or conditions and consequences. We are composed of two parts. One is spiritual, the other temporal. We all have an immortal spirit in our physical body, which gives us life consciousness, and intelligence, none of which the physical body has alone. When the spirit leaves, the body dies. It could be said that the physical body is a biological robot, and the brain the mechanism that gives it instructions. However, it cannot be said that the spirit is a biological robot. Only in the spirit does free will exist. That is why Mr. Hawking is wrong. The following are the founding premises upon which I draw all of my conclusions. God is the author of all laws of a temporal nature or a spiritual nature. Everything is governed by a complete set of laws acting independently, which gives us freedom. Everything is predicated upon obedience to law, whether temporal or spiritual, and that includes miracles, and only through obeying those laws can we gain blessings from God or cooperation from nature. God gave us a mind to understand the mysteries. He gave us a heart to feel the Spirit of God. He gave us the Spirit of Christ at birth, that we may be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Ghost. He gave us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to reason, and a heart to discern wisdom and understanding, good and evil, right and wrong. And above all, He gave us a spirit made in his image and after his likeness, giving us his eternal traits and divine nature. All morality is determined by law. Obedience to law is good. Disobedience to law is evil. Sin is nothing more than disobedience to the absolute laws of God. Everyone on this earth who is inclined to do good as law dictates has the Spirit of Christ, whether they acknowledge it or not. DNA, genes, and chromosomes have nothing to do with good or evil. They are biological functions only. We are all children of God, who is no respecter of persons. We all have a divine birthright. The spirit, not the body, has life and free will. The brain is governed by the spirit. The body is governed by the brain. The spirit gives life to both the brain and the body.
When the spirit leaves, the brain and body are dead. Only the body and brain turn back to the dust. The spirit lives forever. The spirit is governed by our self-existing life force, our intelligence, and our consciousness, which are without beginning or ending. Our intelligence cannot be created or destroyed. It is eternal. God is an intelligence. He is eternal. Our self-existing intelligence determines who we are, not our physical body. Our own identity is as old as God himself, who is without beginning of days or end of years, because the life force cannot be created or destroyed. There is no origin of life. There is origin of the physical body that houses our spirit. That which has a beginning will have an end. This earth has a beginning, but we do not. This earth has an end, but we do not. Regardless of the course we lay for ourselves, God will always be our Father, and Christ will always be our Savior. That divine truth will eventually be known by everyone at the resurrection. But it is better to know it here on earth and act upon it than to discover it later when it is too late to change our course. Science has become a slave to its own false analogies. Science uses both the inductive method and the deductive method of reasoning. Induction goes from specific to general. Deduction goes from general to specific. Let me illustrate the fallacy of false analogy with just one argument promoted by some scientists. The first part is inductive, the second deductive. Adult males average 36 trillion cells in the body. Adult females average 28 trillion. Every cell contains DNA, which holds our genetic code. It is referred to as our instructional manual. A gene is a short section of DNA that determines our features, hair color, eye color, height. Each of us has a copy of our mother's genes, and a copy of our father's genes. It carries hereditary traits. We have about 20,000 to 25,000 genes. Chromosomes are thread-like structures which live in the nucleus or center of cells. A chromosome has one molecule of DNA and one protein. We have 23 pairs of chromosomes, or 46 total which includes our sex chromosomes, X and Y. Chromosomes ensure that DNA is accurately copied during cell division. Therefore, DNA governs our body. Because our body is governed by our DNA, our genes and our chromosomes, we are biological machines. Because we are biological machines, we do not have free will. The argument above is false for reasons I stated above. However, with atheists and many scientists, the conclusion is accepted as fact. Because we are biological machines, we do not have free will. The fallacy is that free will does not reside in the physical body. It resides only in the spirit, which is not governed by biological laws. Many use that false conclusion as the foundation to draw their ideas about man, about God, about free will, about liberty, about agency, about freedom, about morality, about society, and so on. 
They treat us as zombies without a living soul. Those false analogies affect our educational system, our government, our laws, our view of God, our view of morality, and our view of liberty. They affect nearly everything. An argument, no matter how logical, is only sound when the premises are true and the conclusion logically follows from the premises. Today we swim in a sea of confusion because we build our opinions on God and man on false conclusions such as the above. We're drowning in a sea of false assumptions, which no one seems to question. Effectively, that is the argument put forth by Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, in arguing against the existence of God. He believes in genetic determinism, meaning we are mere biological machines. For example, note the following taken from Mr. Dawkins' best-selling book. We now have four good Darwinian reasons for individuals to be altruistic, generous, or moral toward each other. First, there is the special case of genetic kinship. Second, there is reciprocation, the repayment of favors given, and the giving of favors in anticipation of payback. Following on from this, there is third, the Darwinian benefit of acquiring a reputation for generosity and kindness. And fourth, if Zahavi is right, there is the additional benefit of conspicuous generosity as a way of buying unfakeably authentic advertising. It is a form of genetic determinism. It is what Dawkins calls the selfish gene, he said. The most obvious way in which genes ensure their own selfish survival relative to other genes is by programming individual organisms to be selfish. In the above, he claims that we are moral because of our selfish gene, an oxymoron. Not free will, he gives four reasons. 1. We are moral only because of our genetic makeup. 2. We are moral because of self-interest, which Dawkins calls the selfish gene. 3. We are moral because of evolution, which is also a form of biological determinism. 4. We are moral because it advances our cause, again the effect of the selfish gene. That is, of course, genetic determinism. Claiming that man is an animal is another form of genetic determinism. Animals do not have free will. Man is an animal, therefore man does not have free will. Mr. Dawkins argues that we are moral for the same reason that animals, or in his case, bees, insects, and birds are moral. He said, A gene that programs individual organisms to favor their genetic kin is statistically likely to benefit copies of itself. Such a gene's frequency can increase the gene pool to the point wherein altruism becomes the norm. Being good to one's own children is the obvious example, but it is not the only one. Bees, wasps, ants, termites, and to a lesser extent, certain vertebrates, such as naked mole rats, meerkats, and acorn woodpeckers, have evolved societies in which elder siblings care for younger siblings, with whom they are likely to share the genes for doing the caring. Again, evolution is assumed to be a fact in all of its variations. That is hasty generalization. 
Even if evolution in some forms is scientifically valid, all theories of evolution are not. Overlooking the fact that Mr. Dawkins personifies genes, giving them the human capacity to think, another false analogy, he argues that man is like an animal or bird or insect or rodent. And of course, since bees, wasps, ants, termites, naked mole rats, meerkats, and acorn woodpeckers do not have free will, therefore, according to Mr. Dawkins, man does not have free will. It is a non sequitur. A fundamental principle of any argument is that one must logically close the gap between the premise and the conclusion. Claiming that we're a product of our genes, a product of evolution entirely ignores the scientific fact that man is higher than the bee in intelligence. Creating a gap between man and monkey, man and animal, man and insect, man and machine, man and bird. It is comparable to the gap between the sun and the moon, both in brightness and in distance. Any comparison between man and animal, or man and insects, or any other creature is bound to deteriorate into false analogy. False analogy is when you carry the analogy beyond the limits of logic. To the close observer, all arguments against the existence of God sink into the pit of logical fallacies. God is a subject that can be argued through testimony, but in a scientific laboratory can be neither proven nor disproven. Until the Savior himself appears, it will always be an act of faith. God designed it that way for faith to grow. He deliberately remains invisible behind a cloak of faith. Just as I believe that the existence of God cannot be disproven through science, I believe the existence of God cannot be proven through science. Any attempt leads to structural failure. However, the burden of proof is on the side of the atheist. The circumstantial evidence is on the side of the theist. Below are 20 niggling problems that atheists and scientists who try to use science to disprove God must explain away, such as 1. The evidence of intelligent design 2. The evidence of free will 3. The constants 4. The Goldilocks zone 5. The existence and complexity of life 6. The existence of the cosmos Evolution belongs to biological science, not physical science. Scientists falsely use the term evolution regarding the development of the cosmos, another false analogy. 7. The existence of perfect laws. 8. The existence of man. 9. The personal testimonies of millions. 10. The propensity for worship. 11. The unexplained mystery of it all. 12. The answers to prayers. 13. The peace that comes to the heart of those who find God. 14. The existence of miracles. 15. The story of creation. 16. The story of Jesus. 17. The need for redemption. 18. The very scale and harmony of it all. 19. Personal feelings, the metaphysical part of our nature. 20. The still small voice that has been heard by countless numbers of people. Of course, the list could continue. In Archibald McLeish's poem, Dr. Sigmund Freud discovers the seashell. Dr. Freud symbolizes pure science, which doesn't ponder a purpose. 
It ponders only that which can be discerned by the senses. McLeish's conclusion, however, is that there are things that science cannot answer. In the following stanza from McLeish's poem, the personal pronouns refer to science. Who dares to offer her the curled seashell? She will not touch it. Knows the world she sees is all the world there is. Her faith is perfect. Speaking of perfection, those are perfect lines revealing the arrogance of science. In the final stanza, the poet says, The question never ceases. In other words, the 20 assertions above will not be silent. Because laws have conditions, man has free will as evidenced by technology. Free will gives man the ability to be either on the receiving end of law or on the controlling end of law. What is true in the temporal world is also true in the spiritual world. We thrill at the phrase, God is love. We should also thrill at the phrases, God is merciful and God is just. Without justice, there would be no life, no order, no law. Without mercy, there would be no hope for life. We can either control the effects of law by organizing the conditions that set in motion the effect that we desire, or we can ignore the cause and be surprised by the effects, sometimes with disastrous results. It does not pay to play through life. Many ships have crashed upon the rocks, while the one at the helm was hypnotized by the siren song of soothing distraction. Think of it this way. If you want to accomplish something in the temporal world, the first thing you do is to look for the conditions necessary and sufficient to reach your goal. You may need to gather materials, study laws, acquire tools, prepare the environment, go to school. Know the rules, requirements, and standards of judgment. That, however, is the beginning. Next comes the application in which you obey the laws and apply the rules. That increases your chance of success. As success begins to grow, hope grows. It is no different in the spiritual realm. Let's say you want a blessing from God. Call it a miracle, if you will. Obviously, if the blessings are temporal, with prayer you apply the principles stated above. If it is a spiritual blessing such that it is beyond the temporal law, first you learn the laws of God related to that blessing, which are found in the Holy Scriptures. Next, you obey those laws. That is the beginning of faith. Faith is an action word. After faith, you begin to see results. That is the beginning of hope. Faith precedes hope like cause precedes effect. God will reveal himself only through faith, and the shortest way to faith is obedience to law. The result will be the miracle. However, in the spiritual realm, there is one significant thing to remember. When we put ourselves in the hand of God, we must allow God to answer our prayers His way. It is well to allow the following scripture found in Proverbs to be our guide. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy path. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.